You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. Let's open in prayer. Father, thank you again for your word every day, but especially as we have opportunity to open it together and to partake of it, to be corrected, instructed, and rendered uh, more usable for your kingdom. Lord, we pray this morning as we look into your word, you would illumine us, you would give us wisdom, and that you would use it in our lives to further your kingdom and that we would give you the glory for everything that happens. And we'll thank you for what you're going to do in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're still in 2 Corinthians, probably for the next year or more. Um, So if you would turn with me to chapter 1, we're going to read verses 12, I think through 22. We'll see what we got here. Yeah. 12 through 22. 1 Corinthians, excuse me, (laughs) we were in 1 Corinthians for so long, I'm stuck there. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, 12 through 22. For our proud confidence, wait a minute, where were we at? I better, we better read where we're at. Let's, let's actually start back in verse uh, 1. <laughs> Otherwise, we're going to be reading verses we're not going to be looking at. Through about 15. Let's go 1 through 15. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the church of God, which is at Corinth, with all the saints who are throughout Achaia, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. <clears throat> Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For just as the sufferings of Christ are ours in abundance, so also our comfort is abundant through Christ. But if we we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. Or if we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which is effective in the patient enduring of the same sufferings which we also suffer. And our hope for you is firmly grounded, knowing that as you are sharers of our suffering, so also you are sharers of our comfort. For we do not want you to be unaware, brethren, of our affliction which came to us in Asia, that we were burdened excessively beyond our strength, so that we despaired even of life. Indeed, we had the sentence of death within ourselves in order that we should not trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead, who delivered us from so great a peril of death and will deliver us. He on whom we have set our hope and he will yet deliver us. You also joining in helping us through your prayers that thanks may be given by many persons on our behalf for the favor bestowed upon us through the prayers of many. For our proud confidence is this, that the testimony, the testimony of our conscience, that in holiness and godly sincerity, not in fleshly wisdom, but in the grace of God, we have conducted ourselves in the world and especially toward you. For we write nothing else to you than what you read and understand, and I hope you will understand until the end, just as you also partially did understand us, that we are your reason to be proud as you also are ours in the day of our Lord Jesus. So we're going to stop there at verse 14. I don't think we're going to make it any farther than that today. If we do, we'll read. We'll read on. <clears throat> so we ended up last week on verse 9, where Paul had just 
communicated to the Corinthians about some dire straits they had been through in probably Ephesus. We don't know for sure, but uh, they were... Some think it was uh, fighting with wild beasts. Others think it had to do with the people, the, the possibly Demetrius and the big issue there with the silversmiths getting him out of the city so he didn't get killed. Um, whatever it was, Paul had uh, some serious trials to go through there. He actually, indeed, through his entire apostleship, had went through great trials. But uh, he talked about the sentence of death being within themselves so that they wouldn't trust in themselves. What did they go through those things for? One of the main purposes, as we talked about last week, that God brings difficulties in our lives is so that we will learn to trust Him and not people, not circumstances, and not our, and especially not ourselves, but that we will trust the living Savior who has nothing but our best interests at heart. And even when it doesn't look like that, we look to the Scripture and we remember that He says that all things are worked together for our good. Now, does he really mean that? He really means that. It's the truth of Scripture. And so Paul learned to trust God and not himself. And so then in verse 10, he goes a little bit further dealing with this thing in Ephesus or Asia. He ta- it's, just, it's generally geographically located in Asia. He says, speaking of God, he said, who raises the dead, he says also, who delivered us from so great a peril of death and will deliver us he on whom we have set our hope, he and he will yet deliver us. So there's a couple of deliverances spoken of here. The deliverance from Asia, deliverance from death, and the final deliverance that God gives to all believers, all the elect. Paul explains to the Corinthians that God did deliver him from that peril and that he, Paul, has confidence that God will continue to deliver him and that even in yet unknown circumstances, deliverance will come, will be made. God's track record, the Scripture, is unmistakable. He will deliver. He will care for you. He will take care of you, Paul is saying. He did it to us. He will take care of you, Corinthians. Whether it is actual physical deliverance from difficulties that are happening to you on a day-by-day basis or being ushered into heaven, either one actually results in deliverance from difficulties. There are at least four things that we can take away from this. When we are afflicted and respond correctly to it, it makes us more sympathetic. It makes us be able to walk in other people's shoes when they're struggling, when they're having difficulties. I can remember all the years of my young uh, adulthood mocking people who faked back injuries internally. Yeah, yeah, you wouldn't, yeah. I'd say, you just want help. One day we were getting ready to go. You know where this is going to fall, don't you? One day, and God, I thank God for this because it was, it was, it was a, it was a real issue with me. I, I saw lots of people who were always, I was a deacon in a church and I was responsible to take care of what the deacons do here, any benevolence. And I dealt with person after person after person who would come to me with this. And they were often feigned injuries. And God was, I had no sympathy. I was an unsympathetic person. And God needed to build that into me. And we, we would occasionally run across someone who really had need. But when you have no sympathy, you are predisposed at the outset not to look for real problems, but to look for fake problems. And that's not a good thing. Not when we're dealing with one another. So we were getting ready for a trip back east to a homeschool seminar. And my daughter, my oldest daughter, Danielle, and I were arranging the tent. Now, I grew up 
Balin Hay and Logan and and back in the back in those days, I was in pretty good shape. I could probably bench press enough to to sustain my life. I was the tent weighed thirty pounds, thirty pounds. We had it laid out. I reached out and I grabbed one of the one of those bendable poles that you know you bend and it becomes a dome. And I lifted, I don't know, five and something popped. And for four days, I couldn't I couldn't get up. I was crawling. I had to, I literally had to crawl to the chiropractor. It was so good for me. I never looked at back injuries the same again. And to this day, I don't. As a matter of fact, I don't look at any claims that people make with a jaundiced eye anymore. They need to prove to me that they aren't in need. So, and in that particular case, um, one of the things that coming through difficulties that God brings us through will make us, has the potential to make us more sympathetic. Then it also gives us, the second thing is it gives us a great appreciation for God's ability to comfort us in a superabounding way. Remember, Paul said that our difficulties superabound, but he uses the same term for God's comfort, which is even more. His comfort more than meets the need of the difficulty. Then affliction properly endured teaches us to trust God more and not in men or ourselves. And Paul learned that through this difficulty in Asia or, or continued his learning of that. And finally, coming through affliction by the grace of God gives us increased confidence in the power of God and the blessed hope we have for what is coming in our future, the eternity with Him. It's all true, brothers and sisters. It's all true. And what we come through, God builds into us the character of the Lord Jesus Christ. Or if we don't choose to respond to it correctly, as they say, or not. But he has a vested interest in doing that to his beloved children, making us like his son. And my goodness, he will do whatever is necessary to do that, even if it means a five-pound ten breaking your back. And that's my personal story. I'm sure you all have your own. Most, many people are already predisposed to be sympathetic. And that's a good thing. uh, Cultivate it and build it. But we need to be sympathetic and kind to one another so that when people come to us with a need, they know they have a listening ear. And that's what God wants to build into us. Indeed, the afflictions that Paul suffered redounded to his benefit. And the sanctification that follows salvation, or you could say accompanies salvation. And this is indeed what he was referring to in verse 6 about salvation. He wasn't talking about that, that action saving them, but it results in the continued working out of your salvation. His afflictions did not result in salvation, as it were, of the Corinthians, but affliction does have a great effect on sanctification, which is a part of salvation. In, and such it is that the afflictions that come with the resulting deliverance by God demonstrate salvation and firm it up, if you will, in the sense that the Corinthians and we are working out our salvation with fear and trembling and being sanctified day by day by the things that we go through, the good things, the mediocre things, and the bad things. All of them have an effect sanctifying us, making us more like Christ or revealing in us those character qualities that are not at all like Christ and need to change. And so that's what the deliverance that Paul went through had so many effects on him, and that's what he's trying to communicate somewhat of to the Corinthians. Any comments or questions about verse 10? When you're lifting a tent, by the way, don't lean way out. 
my, my chiropractor at the time, who knew me, he knows me, he goes, you were a chiropractic job waiting to happen. That's, it was even more eloquent than that. I can't remember exactly. You were a, what do they call those? The, the, the appointments that you have, they call them adjustments. You were an adjustment waiting to happen. <laughs> oh, thanks a lot, Dave. Verse 11. Now he drink, brings the Corinthians. You also joining in helping us through your prayers so that thanks may be given by many persons on our behalf. Excuse me for just a minute while I get this thing going, which I forgot about. That, for those of you who aren't, list, aren't watching, I'm getting the uh, overhead ready. Abundance. It's a good word. It's being used often here. You also, he says, joining and helping us through your prayers so that thanks may be Thanks may be given by many persons on our behalf for the favor bestowed on us through the prayers of many. Just got to check something here again. Thank you again for your indulgence. Yeah, that's what I thought. Okay. One more. Two more. There we go. Knowing that the effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much, Paul calls on the Corinthians to continue to pray for him. Do you, do you appreciate it when you know people really are praying for you? Not that they say, well, I'll pray for you. And then they go their way and forget you. That happens. But when we pray for one another, a real, a real effective thing happens. For some reason, God has chosen in his sovereignty to work through the prayers of the saints for one another. And when we pray for one another, we need to learn to be explicit and specific and careful and thoughtful and um, dependable in our prayers. Paul depended on the prayers of the Corinthians. He looked to them for prayer. He called on them to continue to pray for him. If they prayed for him, he said God would move and it would bind them more closely together. Prayer for one another both implies and supplies love for one another. William Law said, There is nothing that makes us love a man so much as praying for him. Truly praying for him, truly or her, truly recognizing the need, immersing ourselves in supplicating God to work in that person's life, to teach them the things that need to be taught, to comfort them, to bring them through the affliction, whatever it is, whether it's financial or familial or anything like that, a job, we need to understand and know one another and be praying for one another regularly. Paul understood the power of intercessory prayer, and he wrote this in a manner that indicates he expected the Corinthians to be praying for him. One of the, great, one of the greatest, if not the greatest, thing we can do for one another is to pray for one another. The word Paul chooses here for joining together and helping us, joining and helping us, is used only here in the New Testament, and it's actually rare in classical Greek. It's a word that is composed of three words, with, under, and work. And it pictures a group of people under a heavy burden together lifting it. I, I, when I was looking for a, a, an image to, to, to indicate this, there was one picture that really interested me, that, but it was kind of awful, so I didn't, <laughs> I didn't think it was appropriate. But it was a picture of a Japanese commuter was trapped under a bus. And the people on the bus got off, and there was like 30 or 35, 40 of them, and they pushed all together. They pushed the bus off of him. Someone drug him out. That's what this word means. 
It's people getting together and pushing, supplying, begging God for him to pull the person out from under the bus. And uh, it's, it's a, it pictures a group of people lifting a heavy burden. I don't know if you've studied anything about ants, but they can lift like 40 billion times their weight. And, you know, if they were seven feet tall, they could rip. We wouldn't need drilling. We could just send them right through the mountain, you know, <laughs> chew through that mountain ant. They're powerful creatures. But uh, so that's not part of the analogy here. <laughs> but if we work together in prayer for one another, God will do things. So the word that this is not the power, by the way, of positive thinking. This is intercessory prayer accomplished by saints who love God, understand his word, understand the application of prayer. Prayer does not manipulate God, but rather properly exalts him and submits to his will. Praying for the will of God in his name is abundantly powerful. This is another indication, by the way, that the Corinthian church was coming around. But that uh, that uh, repentance, that godly repentance Paul talked about was supplying repentance in the lives of individuals, was supplying changed lives. God was changing their lives. Any comments about verse 11? Prayer doesn't change God, it changes us. But it also draws us together. It also strengthens our trust and our belief and our delight in God himself when we see him answer prayer. There's just, there's a million things. Somehow God is able to orchestrate everything. And I don't know how many things that is in any given second, but it's a really, really big number. Like uh, one with, well, a, a big number. And he uses some of those things to draw us together, to bind us to him, to cause us to love one another more, to cause us to help one another more. Sometimes prayer calls you to action. When you're praying, God calls you to action. You get off your knees and you get busy. Sometimes he wants you to stay on your knees. Study the word. Be in the word and you'll know what he wants for you. And then Paul says this, verse 12, For our proud confidence is this, proud, he uses the word proud, the testimony of our conscience that in holiness and godly sincerity, not in fleshly wisdom, but in the grace of God, we have conducted ourselves in the world, especially toward you. So this word conscience, and we'll, we'll discuss it a little bit more towards the end of this morning, but answering the accusations of some of the false teachers in Corinth, Paul appeals to his conscience, the soul as distinguishing between what is morally good and bad, prompting to do the former, shun the latter, condemning one, commending, con- commending one, condemning the other. Did you get that? It, it's, it's what prompts us, it can be, what prompts us to do what is morally good and bad, Good, I mean, or to ignore the conscience and do something bad. It prompts us to do the former and to shun the latter, the bad. It commends what is good and condemns the other. Does your conscience do that? Of course it does. I know it does. And uh, we, are, we, are in da- we endanger ourselves when we uh, ignore our conscience. We'll get to more of that as we go. So answering the accusations to some of the condemners or false teachers in Corinth, Paul appeals to his conscience and his conduct. He reminds the Corinthians that he conducted himself lovingly, graciously, and if necessarily, correctively in a biblical manner. He appealed to his conscience and he let the Corinthians know that there was no condemnation there. Paul's conscience didn't condemn him. The conscience is a distant early warning system. It is not the end-all and the be-all, but it is a tool that God has given us that warns us of proximity to sin. We still need 
most necessarily need the doctrine, the reproof, the correction, and the instruction that Scripture gives so that our conscience can be either affirmed or convicted or corrected. First Tim- there's 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. All Scripture is inspired by God, is breathed out by God, and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. It has been said that the conscience is the soul reflecting on itself and that it functions like a skylight, but not like a lamp. This is our lamp. Our conscience lets the light of Scripture through to either confirm or condemn what we are doing. <coughs> Everyone has a conscience. Now, there are, there's this concept of a seared conscience, and I'm not going to get into all the, the implications of that, but there are people whose conscience has been so smashed down that they no longer, actually no longer feel bad about doing really bad things. And that's the spiral that's talking about it, that's talk, talked about in Romans chapter one and also in uh, the pastoral epistles in a couple of places. So what Paul is saying here is that his scripturally enlightened conscience bears witness that he has conducted himself in a holy and godly manner, not using fleshly wisdom, but operating in the grace of God when he was with the Corinthians. Later, he will respond to these lies in a more systematic and detailed manner, but we'll, we'll just kind of give a, a quick overview here in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 3 through 10 dealing with the same thing here. He says, giving no offense, he was, giving no offense in anything so that the ministry will not be discredited, but in everything commending ourselves as servants of God in much endurance, in afflictions, in hardships, in distresses, in beatings, in imprisonments, in tumults, in labors, in sleeplessness, in hunger, in purity, in knowledge, in patience, in kindness, in the Holy Spirit, in genuine love. In the word of truth, in the power of God, by the weapons of righteousness for the right hand and the left, by glory and dishonor, by evil report and good report, regarded as deceivers and yet true, as unknown yet well known, as dying yet behold we live, as punished yet not put to death, as sorrowful yet always rejoicing, as poor yet making many rich, as having nothing yet possessing all things. And that's quite Quite a list that we'll get to in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, which will be probably 2023. The false apostles who were condemning Paul in Corinth were liars. And Paul was not so much concerned about his reputation as he was about these wolves. He knew that if they discredited him, they would also discredit the Scripture and the Lord. They would bring in false teaching. They would upend the work that God was doing in Corinth and they would destroy lives. That's what Paul was concerned about. He didn't care about his own reputation in so much as it was a reputation. He cared about the destruction of the saints. He loved these people. In this section, Paul writes to explain some of the reasons why he changed his plans. That's what we're going to look at here, uh, to visit the Corinthians. It was not ambition that changed his plans. It was not foolishness. It was the hand of God. Paul rightly claims that his motives were sincere and pure, and indeed the word translated sincerity comes from a Greek word which conveys the idea of holding, you can hold something up to the light, let sunlight shine through it, and see that it's pure, that it's clean and pure. Paul has nothing hidden. And Barclay said of this idea that a new beatitude should be added to Matthew chapter 6. He was, he was joking. But he said, we might well add a new beatitude to the list. Blessed is the man who has nothing to hide. 
And that is indeed a blessing. Paul had nothing to hide. He had kept nothing from the Corinthians. He had withheld nothing of the Scripture, as he says in Ephesians and in Acts, that he, he, he expounded to them the whole knowledge of God. So what Paul means to say here is that the virtues which distinguished his deportment, excuse me, Paul was not drawing attention necessarily to his moral perfection. He wasn't saying, look at me. I'm morally wonderful. I'm perfect. I'm the guy. I'm the man. That isn't what Paul was doing. Because indeed, no human has that. What he is explaining to the Corinthians is that his behavior, now get this. I, when I read this, I had to read it. I had to go back and read it over. <laughs> you remember the old saying, well, this is the way we've always done it? Here is a correct application. And we're going to get to that in just a moment here. He was not drawing attention to his moral perfection because no, one, no human has that. What he is explaining to the Corinthians is that his behavior was a natural result of salvation and the grace of God. In other words, Corinthians, this is how Christians should behave, and it is how I behaved. Charles Hodge puts it this way. He said, what Paul means here to say is that the virtues which distinguished his deportment in Corinth were not merely forms of his own excellence, but forms of the divine life, modes in which the Spirit of God, which dwelt in him, manifested himself. In other words, when you become a true believer, your behavior changes. God begins to change you. You may, some of us change kicking and screaming, but change indeed we do. What happens is that the behavior of a Christian, it should be normal for them not to lie. Paul did not lie to the Corinthians because he had some ulterior motive. That's what Christians do. They don't lie. Paul didn't give an itinerary and then change it because he had some weird ambition. God changed that itinerary. That's how Christians operate. Paul didn't bring teaching to Corinth to pad his pocketbook. He brought teaching to Corinth to glorify and exalt the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what Christians do, Paul is saying. This is all normal. I'm trying to remember. I was trying to remember there was like a, a saying or a TV show or something, normal everyday life. I can't. But this is the... Maybe it's a C.S. Lewis book. Help me here for a minute. It's starting to come to me. You see the light bulb? It's dim, but it's starting to glow. Is it mere Christianity? At any rate, the idea is, this is what we do, people. This is how we operate. This is the way. So that when you get to the end or the later parts of your Christian life, and you've been, as Paul has been, not lying. He's been telling the truth. He's been serving others. He's been praying for people. He's been doing the things that are outlined in the scripture. He can say, well, that's how we do then. That's what we do. Because that's what Christians do. He's telling the Corinthians. I'm not doing anything extraordinary. This is how Christians behave. Any questions or comments about that? Verse 13. No. Have you ever had anybody accuse you of not really meaning what you said. Well, here's what you said, but here's what you really meant. Oh, you can read my heart? Thank you very much. Would you read what I meant over here too? Because I'm not sure what I meant about breakfast this morning. <laughs> but we do that. We do that all the time. Actually, that's, if you're looking at Matthew chapter 7 where it says judge not, that's what he's talking about. We don't know what's in other people's hearts. Paul has been accused of writing things that he didn't mean. For he says this, For we write nothing else to you than what you read and understand. And I hope you will understand until the end. Apparently there were those in Corinth who believed Paul wrote one thing and meant another. 
Essentially, they told the believers in Corinth that you had to read between the lines in Paul's letters to get his actual meaning. Here's what he really meant. He might have said blue is blue, but what he really meant was is that blue is a combination of, you know, and, and just get way off in the weeds. What they understood, Paul said, is what he meant them to understand. And he wanted them to know that he hopes they understood these things until the end of their lives that he would never miscommunicate nor lie to them. The two words, two Greek words translated read and understand are compounds of the same Greek root, gnosko, and they are a play on words. They're, uh, in the original language, and it can't, I couldn't, none of the commentators I read and I couldn't figure out a way to reproduce it in English. So I'm just going to tell you what they mean. Um, Anagenoskite means read, and it refers to what they actually read. This is what you read. Epigenoskite, skate actually is the word, how it's pronounced, refers to what they know about Paul, and what he's saying is what you read and what you know are the same thing. I didn't write you some hidden, hidden secret meaning. I wrote straight words to you, and you understand them correctly by reading them straightly. It refers to what they know about Paul from personal contact with him during the years he taught there, and he assures them that the two are in complete harmony. It's like the situation, I, I had a friend who was accused of an impropriety years ago. I knew the guy. I knew he didn't do it. It's just that wasn't him. As it turned out, he didn't. But uh, it's amazing how many people began to back away from this person without even looking into it. Just backed away from him. Paul is saying, don't, don't. Don't do that. What you're reading, I wrote what you're reading. What is, in our modern parlance, is means is. Well, it depends on your definition of the word is. Paul's definition of the word is was identical to the Corinthians' definition of the word is. That's what he's saying in retrospect. It's difficult to convey the way, the means and ways that people have to conceal hidden meanings in their words, hidden meanings. We often use barbs attached to our words, and sometimes only those closest to us know what we are doing because often those barbs are intended to hurt them. It's also part of human nature to deal in a manner that has hidden motives. We often struggle with hidden motives. Being honestly straightforward is a rare a truly rare quality, and in some ways the false teachers in Corinth were at least justified in ascribing to Paul something that is just part of human nature. The problem was, from this perspective, Paul was under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And when a believer is operating by grace, as they should, only then will their actions be pure, straightforward, and truly glorifying to God. Paul was operating that way, and he had no problem declaring it and telling them that his conscience was clear. Barclay puts it this way. He says, If we are honest, we will have to admit that we seldom do anything with absolutely unmixed motives. Even when we do something fine, there may be entangled with it motives of prudence, prestige, of self-display, of fear, of calculation. Men may never see these motives, but as Thomas Aquinas has said, you know, even the, you know, everyone gets something right once in a while. Man regardeth the deed, but God seeth the intention. Barb Clay goes on to say, Purity of action may be difficult, but purity of motive is still more difficult. Such purity can come to us only when we too can say that our old self has died and Christ lives in us. Any comments about verse 13? We are going to have to read some more. Let's read 12 
through 15. For our proud confidence, he said, is this. We just finished this, but we'll read it. The testimony of our conscience that in holiness and godly sincerity, not in fleshly wisdom, but in the grace of God, we have conducted ourselves in the world and especially toward you. For we write nothing else to you than what you read and understand, and I hope you will understand until the end, just as you also partially did understand us, that we are your reason to be proud, as you also are ours in the day of our Lord Jesus. And in this confidence, I intended at first to come to you. His itinerary. He was going to come to Corinth. That you might twice receive a blessing. That is to pass... That is to pass your way into Macedonia and again from Macedonia to come to you and by you be helped on my journey to Judea. Therefore, I was not vacillating when I intended to do this, was I? Or that which I purpose, do I purpose according to the flesh, that with me there should be yes, yes, and no, no at the same time? He's going to have to deal with these false teachers who are saying, and, and we'll get to this as well, but if you can't even keep an itinerary, how can you trust him? So verse 14 just as you partially did understand us, that we are your reason to be proud, as you also are ours in the day of our Lord Jesus. Apparently, the Corinthians' understanding and agreement with Paul was also superficial at one point, but it was growing. And as more and more of them paid attention to his first letter and possibly the severe letter and repented, godly repentance, they turned and began to study the Scripture more, understand God's... uh, God's ideals and actions and activities in Paul's life. In the Old Testament, especially showing the, the, uh, the, the disposition of how the Messiah would come. So as they began to understand more of that, they would begin to believe Paul more. Paul was confirming that what they believed and what they understood was correct. He wants them to be proud of him. Now, that's okay. We want people to be proud of us. We shouldn't live in order to gain people to be proud of us. But it's, 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 a motive, it's, it's, a, it's a human condition that is, as long as it doesn't become our primary motive, it's okay. Do you want people to be proud of you? You want your kids, your parents to be proud of you? It's a good thing. Don't let it be your driving motive for living, but it's a good thing to want others to be proud of us, especially if we want them to be proud of us for doing the right thing. Just as he told them, he was proud of them. He is seeing their change, especially after one of his letters wrought repentance of the godly sword in many of them. As they gained a better understanding of God's word and better insight and understanding into Paul himself, and remember that's why this particular letter is so um, different because it reveals so much about Paul himself. As they gained understanding into Paul himself, they would not be taken by the lies of the false teachers in their midst. Those in Corinth needed to learn about character, And Paul was assuring him that his character was such that what he told them was what he meant and he would never lie to them. Just as Paul told the Thessalonians that they were his joy or crown of exaltation, he wanted that relationship with the Corinthians as well. His conscience was clear and it was an informed and sanctified conscience. He had done no wrong to the Corinthians and these false teachers needed to be dealt with. One of the ways to move in the direction of dealing with these with them was to assure the believers that his teachings were scriptural and that his love for them was genuine. This idea, by the way, of a clear conscience is so excellent that I want to, we'll finish with that today. I wanted to go through the back, I'm going backwards. Do you know why? Because I pressed the wrong button. Keeping a clear conscience. I took this in one of the, one of the commentaries I'm reading is John MacArthur's on 2 Corinthians. Um, and this is 8... 
steps to a clear conscience. Number one, first step to a clear conscience. Learn God's word. In Psalm 37, 30 through 31, David wrote, The mouth of the righteous utters wisdom, and his tongue speaks justice. The law of his God is in his heart, and his steps do not slip. It's important to spend time in the Word of God, Old and New Testament, with an eye to understanding it, to inculcating it into your life. This builds into you the, a tool that the Holy Spirit will use. Second, by meditating on God's Word. In Psalm 119, the psalmist wrote, Your Word I have treasured in my heart that I may not sin against you. Study it, question it, seek to understand it, read commentaries, but study it yourself first. Meditate on it. Spend time in it. Look, see how it applies to your life. See how it applies to the things that have gone around, on around you. See how historically the Word of God has been proven true. See how historically it has been used in the lives of others. Third, by continual watchfulness and prayer. In Matthew 26, 41, Jesus warned the disciples. He said, keep watching and praying that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Paul encourages prayer encourages them to pray for one another, and you should pray for yourself as you study God's Word. Pray for illumination. Pray for understanding. Fifth, by recognizing the seriousness of sin. It was sin that caused the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. Romans chapter 4, verse 25. Our sin put Him on the cross. My sin put Him on the cross. I don't have to look to anyone else in the room. My sin alone, by myself, would have put Him on the cross. That's how serious it is. Sixth, by purposing not to sin. Psalm 119, 106, the psalmist says, I have sworn and will confirm it that I will keep your righteous ordinances. Make it your purpose to avoid sinning, not to sin. And that's hard. Seventh, by resisting the first hint of temptation. James, 14, James 1, 14 and 15 graphically shows the rapid progression from temptation to sinful act. Each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. Then when lust is conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. And finally, verse number eight, by confessing and repenting of sin. Unfortunately, all of us will fail. If we confess our sins, John wrote, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So those are eight good uh, and then it says, and then he further says this, those who heed Solomon's charge, watch over your heart with all diligence, for from it flow the springs of life. Proverbs 4.23. As, as did Paul, enjoy the encouraging blessedness of a clear conscience, if you do that. Eight steps to keeping a clear conscience. We're going to close there. Any comments or questions about verse 14? Run. Use a different word than Lousy. <laughs> um, how could you, you're a musician. How could you invest yourself in her to help her next song be not lousy? I think that's, you'd have to determine if you had the time to do it, but you could say, thank you, you know, I'm, now I'm just, I'm stepping off of this precipice here, but here we go. <laughs> thank you for your, for your song this morning. Hey, would you like to get together with me? I'd like to sing with you. And then maybe you could get together with them. And then if you find, what do you do then, though, if you get together with them and you find out that they can't carry a tune in a bucket no matter what you do? That's on you, Ron. I'm not going <laughs> to. No, you can't do that. It's just how do you do it? What are the tactics, I guess, is maybe the word I'm looking for, that you, that you use to help them 
grow in that area so that they are whatever it is, whether it's music or whatever, that they're no longer lousy. Uh, but what that implies and what that always will imply is involvement with one another, time and effort. And really, that's what God wants us to do. He wants us to spend time to take care of one another and uh, and pray for one another. Um, I, there's a lot of things that came to mind that maybe we could talk about, you know, working with the parents and stuff. But but you, again, you just made made me realize that you're talking about a general issue. Don't. How do we not confirm things that aren't good without while still being kind? Yeah, and that's there, there's so kindness is a given. There's going to be different steps in each situation. Now, I just came up with a hypothetical for your your nine-year-old, but you'd have to. First thing I'd do is I'd get some counsel. <laughs> I know I would because I, the word lousy sounds fine to me, but I don't think it would sound fine to her. So, so I'd have to get counsel. My wife. That's what my wife would say. Well, think of a different word than lousy. You know, <laughs> I can I can remember hearing her say stuff like that to me because I when I finally got smart enough to ask her, how would I help this person quit being so lousy? Did everyone catch that? Compliment the intent, the nine-year-old's intent, was to, to love God, to do well, to bless the congregation. The deed may not have lived up to it. You work, what was your, I work on improving the deed. How to improve the deed. Okay. That's where the, the rub is, though. <laughs> how, do you, how do you help them improve the deed without knowing that you're improving the deed? That's probably not honest either. But it, can be ta- it can be touchy in those kinds of situations. You, what you do is you hope, don't the parents hear this? Some parents, you know, their kids can just do no wrong. I didn't get those kind of kids. <laughs> Neither did I. <laughs> I think I did three things right in 40, my, you know, 18 years at home. Any other comments or questions? Yes. I did? Oh, yeah. That was my pride kicking in. <laughs> what else could it be? Thank you. I'm not going to go through all eight again, but we did miss number four, uh, which actually answers some of the questions here. Fourth, by avoiding spiritual pride, Paul cautioned the Corinthians, therefore let him who thinks he stands take heed that he does not fall. First Corinthians 10:12. We need to be certain that our motives are pure that our desire is to help the person in this particular situation. But as far as conscience is concerned, well, I never do anything wrong. That's really, really dangerous. And I'm exaggerating. I'm taking it to the nth degree. But I think all of us struggle with that in situations. A situation occurs. And in that situation, we were 100% right and they were 100% wrong. That ain't how it works. I wish it was. I wish that in human interaction, it was black and white. This guy was right, and this guy was wrong. And there may be a rare occasion that that happens. I've never seen one. But generally speaking, we've invested some of our pride in the situation, and our conscience wouldn't be condemning us if that wasn't true. So we need to let in the light of spiritual wisdom and not allow our pride to gloss over maybe our need to clear our conscience by going to the person and apologizing. And you don't say, by the way, when you're apologizing, this isn't how, you know that argument we had the other day? Well, both of us were kind of wrong and both of us, gong, forget it. That's not an apology. That's an indictment again. You just own up to what you did wrong and then let them 
if they're a believer, you can trust in one thing for sure. The Holy Spirit, if they did something wrong in that interaction, the Holy Spirit's working on them just like he worked on you. It's a promise. It's a guarantee. Let's close. Lord, we thank you for the conscience you gave us, but more importantly, we thank you for the word of God you gave us to inform that conscience. And so this morning as we reflect on the things that you taught Paul and you taught the Corinthians as they interacted together, if we take one of the things we need to take away from this, Lord, I think at least from your, your, your interaction in my life this week is that we, should, we need to pray for one another. We need to, to find out where we are, what, where each of us are struggling, and do what is necessary. Write it down, create a list formally, but pray for one another. Be in prayer, be on, be on our knees in supplication that you are working in our lives and in each other's lives. We thank you that you're doing that anyway, but you have told us to do this. It is a command, and we will do it. We thank you for your love, we thank you for your direction, and we thank you for what you're doing in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.